This episode of Dungeon Crawlers Radio is brought to you by Geek Girl Realty. Are you looking for that fortress of solitude or a cottage in the woods? Geek Girl Realty can help you out. Check them out at www.geekgirlrealty.com. Dungeon Crawlers. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Dungeon Crawlers where we have David Mack, author of um, The Iron Codex, which is the sequel to The Midnight Front. It, correct? That is correct. All right, I just wanted to make sure. Um, <laughs> you, you, I loved The Midnight Front, and this, if I remember right from talking to you when that book came out, this is going to be a separate story. It's not really a continuation, but kind of a f- move forward a couple years if I'm... Uh, with a new character, if I'm not mistaken. Not exactly. Okay. The main character of book two was one of the principal characters in book one. That's Anya Kernova. She's a Russian woman. She was part of the Midnight Front. She was the sort of friendly rival to our main character, Kate Martin, in book one. In book two, Anya takes center stage, and Kate becomes the main supporting character. Um, but Iron Codex is very much Anya's story. And it uh, also follows a couple of other characters who were introduced in the Midnight Front, and then we get to see their stories continue in the Iron Codex. And it also introduces some new characters and some new complications to our characters' lives. The idea is that with the Iron Codex, we jump forward about nine years to 1954, and now we're deep into the Cold War era. Whereas book one was a World War II war epic and origin story, book two is sort of an Ian Fleming-style spy thriller with black magic. Uh, So it's a very different kind of book. It only covers about 60 days as opposed to the first book, which covered six years of war in the European theater. So it's got a very different style, a very different approach to the narrative, a different focus with Anya being our lead rather than Cade. And it's a spy thriller rather than a war story. So everything about it, it feels very different. But at the same time, we have the same core group of characters. We have the same magic system. And we have some continuing relationships and continuing threats that would thread through the whole series. Now, was it kind of different switching gears going from that war story to the spy thriller type uh, genre? Very much. Uh, And that was always part of the plan. I didn't want to get into a rut writing one war story after another. I didn't want the Dark Arts series simply to be World War II, followed by Korean War, followed by Vietnam War, etc. I thought that would get boring for me pretty quickly as an author and probably repetitive for readers. I thought it would be more interesting to follow these characters who, because of their use of magic are very long-lived and slow-aging, and be able to show them existing in different eras of geopolitical history from the 20th century and see how those different eras of history feel different from one another, uh, both politically, in terms of the kind of life, in terms of the kind of stories that are naturally uh, you know, suited to those eras. Whereas the origin story felt right for World War II, and vice versa. Uh, Book two, with the spy thriller concept, is very much about a journey of self-discovery, but it's got a different style, it's got a different uh, kind of pacing. 
the character relationships operate on a different level. There's more backstory that's taken place between the two books that we allude to. Um, and the biggest challenge for me was the research, whereas researching a very specific topic such as World War II gives you very focused sources to go to. You can research a particular battle. You can research a particular country's role in the war, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You'll find very good documentation on all of that. When you're researching something as open-ended as what was going on in the world from, say, late 1953 through mid-1955, that's a very open-ended question, and it becomes a little more difficult to zero in on historically important moments and useful details. Uh, so I had to sort of compile all of that and take a big picture view of what was going on in the world over a period of time and then say which of these events best serves the kind of dramatic spy fiction, thriller, story, Cold War era spy thriller that I want to tell. Uh, and I eventually settled on a very specific window of time from early January to the beginning of March 1954. Okay. Now, I mean, like you said before, the first book was like six years, so we, we got to jump around in time. To condense it down to uh, 60 days, you said? Yeah, um, 60 days. That, has, that really dramatically increases the, the tempo and the pace of the storytelling, um, and which fits for a spy thriller because you've got to have you know the bomb or whatever that's going to go off in so many days and you have to race against time to, to solve that. So with these characters we've already seen in that first book, how does the, the ticking clock kind of change the dynamics of how those characters interact compared to what we saw in the first book? Well, it definitely is intended to put more pressure on them, to give them a sense of impending disaster. And that, of course, raises the stakes, which is always what you want in a situation like this. It's, help, it's what helps propel the story forward and keep the narrative moving. Uh, and then beyond that, I have sort of competing agendas, as you would find in almost any good spy thriller of the era, where you've got sort of a, a multipolar world. You've got the two great superpowers. You've got East and West. But within that, you also have other power players who are jockeying for position, particularly within this magical subworld that I've created uh, behind the events of real history. So, for instance, uh, an entity that was mentioned but didn't really come into play in book one, which is the Vatican, the Vatican and white magicians, uh, practitioners of what is known as the Pauline art as opposed to the Gerdic art, which is dark magic, you have them come into the into the fold, and now they're part of the mix. They are involved now in helping drive the story. Um, and then, of course, we have some lingering issues from book one, which still have to be resolved. We have Anya hunting Nazis in South America, the ones who have fled to places like Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, Bolivia, with the help of the Catholic Church. And those competing agendas uh, eventually come into conflict as we realize that it's all part of the same narrative, that it all feeds into the same thing. Okay. Now, why the the change in, in characters? I... I, I... It's always good well, to, to have a switch in character 
but why did we why did you jump over to Anya's story? I think I realized by the end of writing book one that I found Anya more interesting than I found Cade. Okay. She had, uh, I think, a more conflict in her family background and more pain as her core emotional driving force than he did. Although he had lost his parents, by the time he lost his parents at the start of book one, he was almost a fully functional adult. And that's a very different type of experience than what Anya had, where she was effectively disowned by her family, cast out by her mother when she was only 13 years old, and sort of forced to fend uh, for herself in a very cold world. And as a result, Anya has a lot of pain that Cade doesn't have. She has a lot of anger that he doesn't have. She has a lot of resentment. Uh, She resented him in the first book because before he arrived, she was the favorite of the master, Adair McRae. Uh, He treated her like a daughter. He always showed her favorable treatment. Uh, She was the favored pupil, even though she wasn't the best pupil. And we find that this resentment carries through into book two and continues to be uh, a driving force in the relationship between her and Cade, that we find that at some point in the intervening nine years, they had become romantically entangled and it didn't work out. And now she wants nothing to do with him and he's still pining after her. Um, And I just, I found that also as I was looking into which character had the most room to grow, uh, there were things that I wanted to do with Anya's character that I thought were just dramatically more interesting And there were more revelations to be given to the readers about Anya than there were about Cade. And ultimately, I just found her to be uh, a lot more fun and a lot more compelling as uh, as my lead in book two. And that carried through to a certain degree where she and Cade share the stage as co leads in book three, The Shadow Commission, which will be coming out next year. Um, But first, before I could have them as co-leads, I wanted a book where Anya clearly was the star. I wanted to put her on equal footing dramatically with Cade so that they could share the stage together in book three. No, I like that. I like how you're showcasing both of them so that they can do uh, that that uh, co-book together. Uh, Because that was my next question is, you know, are we going to see another... uh, book with another lead or they're going to be melded together so you definitely answered that and that that sounds exciting um this world is coming together you have two really strong characters that seem i mean at least from their upbringing almost opposites but somehow they're pulled together and in this amazing crazy uh series of adventures across time yeah, I mean, what, what what bonds Anya and Cade more than anything is they both share a sense of honor. And I think that what brings them together, the sort of unifying element, is the fact that they were both, on some level, selected by their master, by Adair. And Adair puts them together in book one, forces them to get past the initial resentments and become an effective uh, pair of allies – and as you know, they realize by the end of book one, you don't have to like your allies. You just have to be able to trust them. Yeah. And that trust eventually leads to something more between them. But that something more has gone sour when we first catch up to them at the beginning of the Iron Codex. And we're finding that 
for Anya, it's because she knows on some level but is in denial about the fact that she needs to be more than she is, that she is wasting her potential merely hunting down renegade Nazi magicians in South America, that this is not a fitting use of the talent she was born with. But what she doesn't realize is just how much talent she was born with. And it takes a new master to come out of the woodwork, very Yoda-like, the Yoda to her Obi-Wan, to come to her and say, you don't realize what you could be, and that's why you need me. I'm here to show you. And so in that respect, it's uh, very much about her coming to terms with the truth of her own power and realizing that she did start life with a number of disadvantages and that Cade advanced very quickly because he started life with a lot of advantages that she was denied. He was born into a family of wealth. He was a man born into a world dominated by patriarchy. He had the benefit of an Ivy League education. He was studying at Oxford before he went to study magic. He had a very solid grounding in privilege, education, and wealth before he ever embarked on any of this. Anya is a poor girl from a Russian logging town in northwest Russia. She did not have any of these advantages. She grew up poor, borderline uh, illiterate, cast out of her family's home at 13. And yet somehow, by the time of the Midnight Front, she's holding her own in combat, standing side by side with Cade, fighting a war against their uh, their rivals. And it never occurs to her to ask... How, with such a disadvantaged start, is she able to keep up with him? She's so obsessed with the fact that he seems to have learned faster than she did and has excelled past her that it never seems to occur to her, isn't it remarkable that you keep up with him at all? And it takes the second master in book two to awaken her to the fact that she's got more potential and that, in fact, the biggest problem is that in book one, Adair, her first master, loved her too much, loved her like a father loves a daughter. And because of that, he didn't want to put her at risk. And in so doing, he actually cheated her out of some of her potential. He wasn't willing to put her in danger in that he considered Cade more expendable than he considered her. And that when she realizes that, she is able to embrace the power that she should have had all along. Yeah. No, I mean, you, you see that in people a lot where uh, you have two individuals and one always feels inferior to the other. And more often than not, it's generally the one that feels inferior is actually exceeding because they are staying in line with that or staying, you know, toe to toe with them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and there, there's a go ahead. No, I was going to say that it's because they often hold themselves to this very high, almost unreachable standard. Um, and they often fail to see just how much they've accomplished because they're always measuring themselves against what they haven't done rather than what they have done. Yeah, and you know, and as the person they're measuring themselves up to continues to grow, that the, that yardstick keeps getting higher and higher and higher. Um, yeah, and yeah. I think all of us can relate to that. At one point, we've we've felt that way, um, as well as you know, you that master kind of you know. Every parent kind of does that from time to time. They maybe coddle a child a little too much and when they should give them a little nudge towards doing something on their own and seeing how they do it. And if they fail, it's okay to fail. Um, so I, I, I like that when we see that in characters where they finally like, wow, um, I'm actually yeah, I mean, pretty good. Something fun that we got to do with that in book two is that there are certain scenes where she is – 
being made to confront her own past, and we revisit scenes that were in book one, but from a different perspective, from her perspective, and things are sort of revealed to her over the course of sort of like a, a mystical vision quest, if you will, basically while she's tripping on mushrooms in a, the equivalent of a sensory deprivation pool. And she realizes things that were right there in the text all along, you know, so, and the reader will probably have the same reaction as Anya, which was, holy crap, it was right there in front of me. It was right there and I didn't see it. And I'm, I'm hoping that there will be some readers who will enjoy those moments. You know, when I come across a moment in that, like that in a book, that just makes it all worthwhile. When it's been so blatantly obvious that you've missed it, and then it, you know, the curtain is drawn back and it's revealed, and you're like, no way. And then you go scanning back and you're like, oh my gosh, it's been there all this time. You mm -hmm. know, David has been the magician waving the wand in front of our eyes, you know, what keeping this out in the open, but making us look left when we should have been looking right. Uh, I love that. I love that. That always makes a story ten times better for me. Yep. So, I mean, I have to say bravo on that, because that, that, oh, that is amazing to do that. All while weaving the web you are in the story and keeping all those those little dots connected throughout it, it it's not easy at all. No. No, and I had to keep a lot of things in the air, and I had to consider how the characters' story arcs, how each character was going to evolve and change, what they were going to learn as part of this journey. And I did this, again, just as I did on book one, where I plotted it out sort of using a variation on the hero's journey template. What did the hero's journey look like from the point of view of not just the main characters, but the supporting characters, and also the villain, Um you know, I sort of think about the villain's journey just as I think about the hero's journey. I did that again on book two, where I had to think in terms of realistically, what is the supporting character's journey? Because to the supporting character, he's the hero in his own story. What is his change? How does the supporting character change as a result of events? So I had to make sure that it wasn't just Anya who had to undergo a learning experience and a change of character, or just Anya and Cade. It's Anya, it's Cade, it's Briette, who is on a journey of redemption. Uh, she was a character who was a villain in the first book, and now she's on this journey of redemption, because by the end of book one, we saw that she was recruited via Operation Paperclip to now work for the U.S. Department of Defense, heading up the Magical Defense Program. Well, now she's got to sort of redeem her past, uh, so the book is about that. And then we have the uh, one of my favorite new characters in the book is Father Luis uh, Perez, who is a white magician who is charged with a mission, a holy mission by the church, to recover this grimoire that is last known to be in the possession of Anya Carnova. And Father Luis has to go through his own journey, weighing his orders from the church against what he knows to be right. Uh, he's a pacifist, but he also knows Aikido, which is a very sort of pacifist form of martial arts. It's very much about defense. It's about causing as little harm to your opponent as possible while denying them the ability to hurt you, which I thought was a very appropriate martial art for a man of the cloth. And so he's got his own journey where he has to realize, you know, where is the line drawn between what, say, the magical covenant says I can do Versus what the church says I can do, whereas what my conscience says I must do. How do I balance these things while remaining true 
to my vows as uh, as a Jesuit priest. So I had a lot of you know sort of fun just thinking about the story from the perspective of each character and making sure that everybody had to go through a growth. Everybody had to go through a change, not just the main characters. No, that's, that's great. Um, I mean, everyone grows throughout life and to have a, that is one thing that I found that is always interesting. Sometimes you don't see that, that growth and story arc in the villains or the, the side characters. You see it in the main characters or the co-main character, but the other ones kind of seem stagnant. It doesn't seem like they grow. Um, so that's good to see that everything's kind of growing naturally within the story arc. Now, I, I do have one question as, I, as I'm reading through this. The Castle Bravo nuclear test and the magic. Um, yes. How does that come together? That just seems like a gigantic, horrible disaster it's waiting a, it's a terrible idea uh it's actually it's key to the villain's master plan uh and the thing is what's interesting is that i have from the point of view of the villains as you read through the book uh it's the backup plan they don't want to use their 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 a plan you know plan a is get their hands on the iron codex which is this grimoire that belongs to anya Carnova. if they could get the iron codex and have the time they need with it they wouldn't need to do this incredibly nefarious, dangerous, stupid thing of fusing black magic with the Castle Bravo uh, hydrogen bomb. But as they are repeatedly thwarted in their attempts to obtain the Iron Codex, and having anticipated that this might be the case, they have this as the backup plan. This is plan B. They don't want to go to plan B, but they reach a point where they're like, okay, time is up, now we have to go to plan B. And so they do. Um, and that was inspired by the fact that in real life, one of the most accomplished scientists who worked at the Jet Propulsion Lab uh, was a guy, uh, he was like a rocket scientist, like a bona fide rocket scientist, who was also a practitioner of Thelema, which was a type of ceremonial magic made popular by Aleister Crowley. And there was actually, I believe, a... Uh, a TV series. I think it might be on Amazon. I'm not sure. It's on one of the streaming services. It's called Strange Angel. And it's actually about the the real life of this NASA JPL rocket scientist who was also into ceremonial magic and sex magic and, uh, you know, the Aleister Crowley type occult stuff and Freemasonry. Um, but I didn't want to do his story specifically because he's pretty well documented and he never did anything quite this uh, nefarious. And I didn't want to defame him. So I created a fictional character inspired by him. The idea of you've got somebody inside the U.S. nuclear weapons program at uh, the Los Alamos National uh, Scientific Laboratory. Um and this person just happens to be uh, part of or someone who has spun off from uh, Tula Gesellschaft, which is the Tula Society, which was the occult society that gave birth to the Nazis and which in Iron Codex lives on in South America as uh, the Black Sun, which was got its name from the Black Sun mandala imagery, which Himmler was so fond of and which featured prominently in his office in Beevilsburg Castle. So I, I took this notion of physics, high science, 
beginning to sort of crack apart the very foundation of reality and sort of show that that's really where the dividing line between science and magic starts to happen. Um, that if you could truly understand magic uh, on a scientific level, it would start opening up new branches of, of science. And we see that that's what's going on, for instance, with the character Briette, who runs the occult defense program at the Pentagon. There's this whole thing called the silo underneath that central plaza in the Pentagon. I mean, this was covered in book one. It's not a mistake that the Pentagon is the same shape that is found at the core of the grand thaumaturgic uh, circle. That, that's not a mistake. <laughs> There's a reason why the Pentagon is shaped the way it is, and it's because it's shaped for magical defense and because there's this whole magical laboratory built under it. And they study it, and they got scientists, and they got lawyers parsing demonic contracts, and they've got banks of computers and all sorts of stuff going on down there. So I took this notion and I just ran with it. And I don't want to spoil for readers what the rationale was on the part of the villains, why they are uh, fusing black magic with the Castle Bravo device. Um, but that is a key part and parcel of the villain's plan. And it is a terrible idea, and it's exactly why it has to be stopped. <laughs> No, I, I appreciate you leaving out the details, so now we have to read it. Uh, That's the idea. Yeah, but what well, a way. That's the hope. Yeah, I mean, what a way to put the ticking clock uh, there and really put that sense of urgency in because, yeah, that's just a big, massive, horrible, nasty idea that I now need to figure out and find out what happens. Um, so beautiful hook right there. It, yeah. Excellent. Thank you. So, to, since we're quickly running out of time, the sure. book is out. It's available. It's in physical book, ebook. Is it also in audiobook? It, it is. It was read by uh, uh, an artist named uh, Natasha Sudek. And the reason we switched from uh, a male reader who we had on uh, book one uh, to a female reader for book two. This was the suggestion I made to the audiobook producers. I said, look, we're changing the main character from Cade to Anya, and it's very much Anya's story. If it's at all possible, if you guys would be willing to consider it, I think that having a woman as the ebook reader for book two would be more appropriate. And they thought about it, and eventually they concluded that they agreed, and they sent me uh, the audition tape for Natasha Sudak, and uh, I really loved what she was doing with it. I thought that she uh, had, a, had a real feel for the material. And particularly when I got to the end of her audition tape, which was just her reading uh, chapter one, just the opening sequence, at the end she you know, did that thing that voice actors do where she reads her name, yada, 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 and she signed off with, and I love Anya. I was like, okay, she, she gets it. She, she's our girl. <laughs> Yeah. Natasha Sudek is the one. So yeah, it's out in trade paperback, ebook uh, in whatever ebook format you like, and audiobook from Macmillan Digital Audio. Nice, and, and I like the fact you did that. Um, I know in Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive, they've done that as well, and to the point where now, where the the male and the female voices are going, they switch back and forth. So maybe with the next book, you do that. I don't know, but. Um, that's an interesting idea, having two narrators on one book. I'll have to look at how book three is put together, 
because it does have some chapters that are very clearly female perspective dominated and some that are male perspective dominated. That's interesting. I yeah. would have to look at that. Yeah, he, he, they do that in, that in the Stormlight Archive, and they do that exactly when it's the female perspective. They jump over to Kate Redding that reads those, and then Michael Kramer reads the, the male um, chapters. So it's definitely interesting. Uh, it's something that I had to get used to, but after a while, I started really liking it. It's like, okay, I know exactly when we're changing perspectives. Uh, so that was, huh. that was fun. Yeah, because I mean, we had Robert Petkoff who read book one. That'd be interesting. Have him read, for instance, the sequences that are from the point of view of male characters and have Natasha read all the sequences from the point of view of uh, female characters. I think that that would bring a really interesting quality of contrast to the book. I'm going to suggest that to the producers. I think that's actually a pretty cool idea. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. You have an idea uh, for the next book. Hopefully that works like out. It. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So for everyone out there, if you haven't read Midnight Front, run out, pick it up. If you want to continue reading that series, uh, pick up the Iron Codex. So it's all part of, oh my goodness, I'm blinking, the Dark Arts series. Um yep fantastic i love the first book i'm super excited about the second one so everyone go out pick up your copy because it's a fantastic series and on top of that you know why not it's a fun spy thriller if you're a huge james bond fan or any fan of spy novels or movies this is going to be a perfect one for you so and uh and book three is already written it's in the pipeline now at tour uh, it's called The Shadow Commission. Its scheduled release date is June 9, 2020, so it'll be out next summer. And the big idea with Shadow Commission is that it's a paranoid conspiracy thriller, kind of like Three Days of the Condor meets John Constantine. And uh, I had a lot of fun putting that together. And once again, the time frame of the book is accelerating. Again, where Midnight Front happened over six years and Iron Codex happens over 60 days, the Shadow Commission takes place over one week, seven days immediately following the assassination of John F. Kennedy in November 1963. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, and it's definitely one of those everybody in the world is out to kill us, what the hell just happened type books. Very nice. Um, dang it. Now i got to wait till next year. All right. So, again, thanks for coming on the show Everyone go pick up your copy because the next book's coming out next year and you need to read up to find out what's going to happen in uh, book three. So with that said, folks, we're out of here and we'll catch you next time.